Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the hardest working man in the NHL. He's currently pulling double duty, covering both the Islanders and Rangers for the Athletic. He previously spent 20 years at Newsday. I don't know how he could have obviously spent 20 years if you were there, AJ. That, that's uh, covering the <laughs> Islanders. I, I was there for 35. So, yeah. <laughs> as well as covering the Islanders, as well as wide-ranging sports topics. He's one of the... Um, um, he is probably owns the greatest collection of defunct hockey team hats of anyone I know. He has a brand new book out, 100 Things Islander Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. He has somehow collected every essential piece of Islanders' knowledge as well as must-do activities, ranks them all from 1 to 100. This book is a must-have, whether you are there for the franchise's first four cups or they are just diving in right now. There are 100 things every fan needs to know and do in their lifetime. It is a pleasure to welcome the man who put it all together, the one and only author, Stable of Sports Talk New York. Welcome, author. It's good to be here, guys. Thanks. Yeah, and you hear that noise in the background. He is at Madison Square Garden. So this is a series of books that Triumph has put together, and they've had a lot of success with. There's a specific formula that the books follow, but each author has the ability to come up with their 100. What was the process you used to come up with the 100 and rank them? Uh, well, Mark, you, you know, you're a veteran of writing uh, many, many, many more books than me, so you know it's... Uh, it can be a, a torturous process at times. I, I just kind of based a lot of it on uh, a lot of research, talked to as many people as I could, uh, a lot of Islander fans who I've gotten to know over the years about, you know, the things they remember the most, the things that are most important to them, and try to throw in a few of my own from the decade or so I spent covering them, uh, not just at Newsday, but at The Athletic, too. So um, it all came out uh, to 100, just barely. My counting my counting skills were pretty weak by the end of it, but... Uh, but it was a fun ride for sure. You know, I'm, I'm also curious about the process and how you approach the books. Which readership groups are you trying to reach? Longtime Islanders fans for whom the chapters will rekindle memories or newer, probably younger fans who many of the stories will be new? You know, AJ, I think it's, I think it's some of both. Um, you know, part of the process for me, I wasn't an Islander fan growing up. And that uh, the dynasty era was kind of just before my time really paying attention to hockey. So not just reading old clips from Newsday, from the Times, from, from the people that were covering those those games, but also talking to the guys involved. Um, you know, some of those stories were new to me. And I thought these things, these little details that may not have been, uh, you know, headline makers back then, but just kind of the day to day stuff that went on inside the locker room, the dealings with, with Bill Torrey and with Al Arbor for some of the guys that were on those dynasty teams. I feel like the details really make those stories. And so I think you're trying to appeal to people who live through it, but maybe don't know some of the inside stuff. And then some people who came to the Islanders a little bit later in, uh, in their lives or were too young to, uh, to remember those days. Uh, and then you give some of them the basics with a little bit of uh, heightened detail. So um, a little bit of both, I think, and, and just, thinking about some of the fun things that I learned Chico Resch talking about Billy Smith's uh, very typical Billy Smith speech before the playoffs started in 1980 um, 
I think a lot of the guys that were in the leadership group in that room were talking about they were a family and they needed to stay together. And it was, of course, Billy Smith standing up and saying, those guys over there want to take money out of our pockets and I'm not going to let them do it. Uh, you know, <laughs> Chico uh, said if there was money on the line, Billy Smith was your guy. So uh, I, love, I love hearing stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff I think that makes those, those stories that people know pretty well a little bit more enjoyable to read. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that, you know, trying to educate some people. So I grew up a Rangers fan and, you know, I, I knew of the Islanders. I, I followed the Islanders. But, you know, some of the, the little nuances that I didn't know, like you start the book out with the birth of the Islanders and the best move that Roy Bo- ever made was hiring the guy that the NHL suggested, Bill Torrey. But you point out in the book that there are two guys who are better known from other sports that had, uh, you know, an impact on that. One, of course, was the guy he was working for, Charlie Finley, and the other is Art Rooney. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about how those two guys had a little bit to do with why Roy Bowen ended up hiring Tory. <laughs> you know, it's uh, that kind of stuff is obviously tough. Those people are all gone now, but um, just reading up about it and finding, you know, that, that Tory had worked uh, in Oakland for that uh, Charlie Finley's kind of failed SEALs venture. Um, but I think, you know, even in that, it, working for a guy like Charlie Finley, I think if you can survive that, you can survive almost anything. Um, and just Tory's Pittsburgh background, you know, I think uh, having to been in the, in the in the Pittsburgh sports scene for a little while before he, he got his start, um, you know, I think those worlds kind of collide a lot. Hockey, football, the, the owners, uh, especially in a, in a new league uh, like the NHL with those relatively new teams, uh, you can get some good people on your side. So those recommendations, you know, Roy Bow was uh, was a bit was certainly a character, a visionary, maybe a guy ahead of his time. Uh, a guy whose dreams were a little bit bigger than his wallet at times, but uh, but the fact that he was able to hire someone like Bill um, really made all the difference. I think you know the, the Islanders wouldn't be what the Islanders became without that that one decision, and it's always fun to see how the kind of those things trickle down from from the original time. And also, you get an education, especially if you're a younger fan. You people marvel at the job that George McPhee did with Vegas. Obviously, under different circumstances, with the the way the, the um, expansion draft was done, but the foundation that Bo laid in that first draft: Billy Harris, overall number one. Their second and third round picks: Lauren Henning, Bobby Nystrom, tenth round Gary Howitt. When you went back and looked at how the Islanders were built and, and some of these moves that Tory made along the way, what were some of the things that just jumped out at you? Like, wow, this is unbelievable the way this dynasty ended up being built yeah you know i think just the way that he approached the expansion draft um and in a kind of a disappointing fashion i think the islanders thought maybe they'd be able to get a better team than they did they they were you know the the nhl kind of ruled that if guys were interested in going to the fledgling wha which a lot of them were rather than go to the island and play for an expansion team um, that really threw off his plan a little bit. But the way that he rebounded, like you said, there were there were at least two or three or sometimes four guys from each of those first two drafts that they really targeted, you know, drafting Brian Trache essentially a year early at 18 because guys were mostly drafted at 19 and 20 back then, um, you know, s- sitting in the cold in, in uh, Manitoba watching Trache play a, a junior A-level game uh, and seeing that this undersized guy who had a lot of heart might work well in what they've got and you know, whatever, how many years later to see Brian Trottier as one of the all-time great players in the history of the league. Um, and then things like Bob Bourne, you know, a guy who'd been drafted by Kansas City 
they came to him at the end of training camp and said, we're not going to keep you. Do you want to go somewhere to play? And he knew Clark Gillies. They grew up together. And ironically, now they're uh, grandfathers together, which is one of the great stories of all time that their kids married each other and have a couple of kids now themselves. But I think Bob Bourne said there's a lot of Western Canada guys in that team and they're playing. I want to go there. And so trade, you know, for Bart Crashley, who had gone, who had picked by the Islanders in the expansion draft, had gone to WHA. So basically a trade for nothing. And another longtime core dynasty Islander comes along. So um, it's a lot, it's a little bit of luck like it is with any team, um, but a lot of shrewd moves by Bill Torrey. Jim Debolano, who helped him, who was his assistant for a long time in those early days. Uh, they were quite a team. And, and when you can say, uh, you didn't, you know, sometimes you have an established team and a new GM comes in, you've inherited some things. Bill Torrey inherited nothing, right. <laughs> maybe maybe less than nothing, and turned it into what he turned it into. And with Bourne and Gillies, too, the two of them were minor league baseball teammates. Uh, under, uh, ironically, the manager of the team's name was Billy Smith. But you just mentioned Jimmy D. And, and you know, I, this is another great tidbit that, that you bring up that, you know, after that first season with the two coaches, then the search for the new coach went out in earnest. And Al Arbor wasn't the first choice. There were two other guys, but Jimmy D really is the guy that's instrumental in getting Arbor hired. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, Jimmy wrote uh, a great book about uh, mostly about his time in Detroit, obviously, uh, which was a huge success, but he had a big hand in, in kind of building up the Islanders uh, in the pre-Cup days. Uh, and Al Arbor was, you know, was a guy who'd had a run in, in St. Louis and, and maybe hadn't you know, quite succeeded as well as, as you would have thought. And, um, you know, starting with an expansion team, even one as successful as the Blues were making the finals as they did a few years, um, it still was an expansion situation. And I think Al Arbor was a little leery of, of doing that all over again. But when he came in and saw the island, and I think the funny story about his, they were on vacation after his interview in Florida, he and his wife, and they met a couple from Long Island and they were telling him how great it is up in, up in the island, all the things you can do, how great it is to have a family there. Um, and that kind of helps seal the deal. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's amazing to see the, the, the ways those could have gone again, much like Roy Bo choosing Bill Torrey. Bill Torrey and Jimmy Devilano choosing Al Arbor, a guy who hadn't quite had the success as a coach that maybe they wanted to bring into that situation after such a terrible first season. Uh, and the improvements that they made right away under Al Arbor, his, his personality and his coaching style fit what they wanted to do, and they were they were on their way in a very short amount of time. I think the line of demarcation for the franchise is 75, and you talk about it in Chapter 10, which is entitled 11 Seconds. Um, it's also probably the line of demarcation when I actually started to need therapy, being a Ranger fan on Long Island, um, especially having to hear John Sterling call that uh, 11 seconds into overtime, J.P. Parisi from Drew But a lot of people forget that the Islanders coughed up a three-goal lead in that game. But what did that early playoff series win, win against the Rangers mean to the franchise and the growth of, of that core? You know the the young guys on that team, and obviously it was it was their kind of their their senior line, I guess you'd call it, with those two guys that that Tori had picked mm-hmm. up, Juju and J. Parise, J.P. Parise, with Eddie Westfall, who was their first captain, and you know a guy who was maybe a little past his prime when he when picked him up in the scratcher draft from the Bruins, but was a consummate pro and came in and was the captain and kind of led the way and brought a lot of the kids into the into the core of the team and made sure that they were all included in everything. Um, but they're still, you know, it's still a very young team. And I think a lot of the young guys 
when they're first were playing those home games uh, in 73, 74, 74, 75, playing against the Rangers in the Coliseum, having it be 75% Ranger fans, I think they felt mad. I think they felt like this is our team. This is our area. We should have more fans here. Um, and I think that was a, that was a real driving force to know that um, the Rangers weren't necessarily uh, world beaters in those, you know, the seventies, at least after their two trips to the finals, but they were still the big brother to the Islanders, little brother. And as we talked about <laughs> in the book, the financial hole that the Islanders were in the, the money that they owed the Rangers just for existing for, for, you know, the Rangers giving up their territorial rights to allow the Islanders into the league. Uh, that money was accruing. I think there was just a sense of, this is our hill to climb right here. And the fact that they were able to do it in that series so quickly, third year of existence, and then go on to do what they did, which is come back from three, nothing down, beat the Penguins, almost do it again against the Flyers in the semifinals. Um, it's uh, it was heady times for them. And I think they, they arrived in such in, in the right kind of fashion to not only build up their own confidence, but build up their fan base. They beat the big boys from the city. So I think that that got a lot of people from Long Island to, to realize that this team is for real. You know, Arthur, I like that you dedicate a couple of chapters in the book to Islanders villains. And in my book, Dale Hunter's at the top of the list, maybe because I was there in the Coliseum in the Newsday box the night he took the hit on Pierre Turgeon. But you rank him as a greater villain. Someone hurt the Islanders by playing for them, not against them, Kirk Muller. Why do you feel Muller was an even greater villain? You know, that's one where I lean on a, a lot of the friends that I've made over the years who are who are diehard Islander fans from that 90s era. Um, you know, it, it was such a dark time with the ownership shenanigans that were going on when, when John Pickett decided to step away and, and really things went downhill very quickly. Uh, you know, they, Bill Torrey was phased out, Don Maloney came in, then Mike Milbury. And Milbury was working his hardest to try to legitimize the team and keep them afloat and... and grasping at whatever he could grasp at. And Kirk Muller was a guy who incredibly respected player in the league, in his time in the league, a high skilled player, a guy who accomplished a lot. Um, and I think Islander fans felt some hope when that trade was made, that someone wanted to come there and play and lead this team. And immediately he was very vocal about wanting no part of it. And I think it just sort of, it was a thing that, that broke a lot of the Islander fans' backs. And I think yeah, it, it's easier to hate someone who doesn't want to play for your team than the people that are running your team, for sure. <laughs> because you know that hopefully someday your fandom will be rewarded. So, um, he's, uh, you know, there's definitely been some people over the years that haven't wanted to come play for the Islanders. Some did come uh, and ended up liking it. You know, in more recent years, guys like Evgeny Nabokov, who bought the coming, Lubo Vizhnovsky, who was traded here and didn't really seem to be interested in coming. They both came and had some success in the last 15 years or so. But Kirk Muller is really the one guy that came kicking, kicking and screaming, didn't do anything during the time he was here, and wanted out immediately, and really just coincided with one of the real deep valleys uh, in the Islanders' history. Yeah, it's also interesting because when you, you take a look at the history of franchises, you know, if the Islanders didn't have that, that dynasty, there are other moments that may have jumped way up on top of the list. And, and one of them, obviously, is the Easter epic. And another one is, you know, I, I kind of, I, I probably think Sean Bates might be the Ende Chavez of, of the Islanders. You know, you take a look at a great moment, but... You, know, you go on to lose a series, what does it mean? But those two moments, you know, if you take away the Islander dynasty years, where do you think those two moments would have ranked? 
They're definitely up there. And I think, you know, the, the beauty of it is, as we were talking about it earlier, about, you know, fans of different ages really value different things. And I think for fans of a certain age, that Sean Bates goal was yeah. was really the, the apex of their fandom in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So those teams in the early 2000s were good. But that particular season uh, where they kind of came from nothing, you know, hiring Peter Laviolette, trades for Alexi Yashin and Michael Pekka, Chris Osgood coming off waivers. It all just seemed to come together. They had a hot start that year. I think they were 9-1-1. One, one. Um, so there was a lot more interest in that in that year than there had been in a long, long time. And then that series that tons of people, Islanders, players, Leafs players, fans from both teams say was one of the nastiest, most intense series. And the first-round series, which was amazing between two teams that hadn't played in the playoffs in almost, I think it was 23 years. Um, it was it was rough and it was physical and it was over the line a lot and there were a lot of big goals and I think just having one of those Coliseum moments where you say I was there that night when something great happened and that that moment was with Sean Bates' penalty shot it was uh, it was a night to remember even if it didn't ultimately end the way that they wanted it to uh, in that series but it was uh, and the fact that it was a guy who had been Another guy who'd been kind of cast off from the organization, Peter Laviolette knew him well and brought him in, and, and he really flourished in his couple of years in the island. Um, that made it even sweeter because that kind of epitomized what the Islanders were about for a long, long time of, of trying to win without a lot of stars. You sprinkle chapters about the various Islanders owners throughout the book, and two of them are curious to me. One is Charles Wong's tenure is only number 72, and I'm wondering why you waited so long to get to Wong era. And then in writing about the John Spano fiasco, which I remember very well, uh, you key on the Kevin Connolly 3030 documentary, not in the Newsday stories that uncovered many of the, his lies. So any reason you didn't name Newsday in that chapter? So let's talk about Wong first while you wait to 72 and about why you use Kevin Connolly for the Spano fiasco. Well, AJ, unfortunately, we live in a very visual world these days, and, uh, and Kevin is being maybe one of the most well-known celebrity Islander fans. The, the documentary he put together is, uh, is pretty succinct. I think he relied a lot on Newsday. He certainly interviewed Alan Hahn, who was Newsday's writer back then, and, and John Valenti, who was, kind of central, who was central to a lot of those stories uh, from back in the, in the 90s. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes... <laughs> Uh, the, the vagaries of, of putting a book together on deadline uh, take precedent with, uh, with trying to find stories and, and reading through things. So I was able to do both, but uh, there's uh, the part of the book that is uh, not just uh, things to know, but also do. And I think uh, watching that documentary is one thing to do that uh, sums it up pretty neatly. What an incredibly bizarre stretch of time that was with Spano and what an incredible character he was uh, not in a good way. But uh, and as far as Charles Wong goes, you know, um, working in Newsday during the time that he was owning the team, uh, you know, he was an outsized influence, I think, for Long Island, more so than for Islander fans. Um, I think their view of him is a little bit more mixed. Um, you know, he certainly had a rocky start with uh, his company being investigated and his original Islanders ownership partner going to prison. Um but, uh, but I think his legacy is sort of muted now because of what's going on since then. You know, the, the fans are all about results, and, and, and Charles definitely did things his own way. He obviously came in, you know, with a flourish, and like I said, in 2001, when they 
had a little bit more success and we just wanted to spend more. But then when the when the arena, the, the, the goal of trying to get into arena fizzled out, he really receded from view a little bit. And, uh, and I think the transfer over to, to Scott Malkin uh, and John Ledecky and the success the team has had and now a new arena coming, it's, it's certainly a lot to do with, with Charles Wong's legacy, but I'm not so sure that uh, the fans take the same sort of view that we do from uh, from 10,000 feet on I know you have to get ready to start covering the game and you know, your normal Twitter stuff, so we're not going to keep you much longer. Just have a few more questions. It's not every fan group that gets to crack the top 100, but makes it into the top 50 in your book. For fans outside of New York area, why is it important for Islander fans to sit up and sing along with the Blue and Orange Army? You know, it's it's uh, it's a group of people that were there when there was hardly anybody else in the Coliseum. And now that, now that UBS Arena is going to be full, uh, I feel like it's it's right to honor those people. I've definitely covered a lot of Islander games in the early 2010s that maybe had 5,000 people or 6,000 people. Uh, but those guys, uh, those men and women were there every night, at least a couple hundred of them banging drums making like it was uh, a full house at, a, at, at Wembley Stadium for an FA Cup semifinal, but, uh, you know, singing their songs and coming up with chants and trying to make it as festive an atmosphere as possible, which was not always the case in the Coliseum during some of the darker days. Um, so it is fun to, you know, I, I think a lot of people, when I think about the dynasty era and Coliseum being full all the time, Fort never lose, uh, and then the way that it just sort of emptied out when the owners let the team fall in disrepair. Uh, I think those fans that stayed really deserve a lot of credit for sticking through with a team that, that didn't give them a lot of love back uh, and really didn't give them much to cheer about. So I feel like that's why they belong that high up. Uh, and now that the team's back to being a, a sold-out success, uh, they're all still there and they're singing their songs about Josh Bailey or about whoever else, and, uh, and, and it's worth mentioning. So this is going a little back in the chronology. One of my favorite parts of the book is the chapter on the house on Wayfield Terrace. I guess a place you don't want fans to go to to not disturb the current owners of the house. And probably I liked it because many years ago, a house in the neighborhood Mark and I live in had four islanders, Steve Thomas being one of them. So can we tell our listeners about that house and about the significance to the city? It's one of those little stories. You know, I got to know Mark Parrish pretty well. He co-hosted my podcast a couple of years ago and, and uh, the guy who's done some TV work over the years. Um, obviously, Eric Cairns has worked for the Islanders now for a long time since he retired. Steve Webb works for the Players Association. These are guys that, are, that have been around uh, the sport and it's fun to just sort of catch up with them and realize the connections that they all still have. And I've heard, I've heard about this house, even from Garth Snow, because that was his Sunday football watching spot, because uh, I don't think he was uh, married quite at the time either. So, you know, I think when we think about professional athletes, uh, it does have a very collegiate feel to it, and those were four relatively young guys that all lived in that house along with Sean Bates, and uh, a lot of stories were sort of hinted at, but not really uh, detailed, because nobody wanted to take credit for putting them in the book or putting them out into the world. Um, but... Uh, they had a lot of fun, and I think that camaraderie of guys living together or guys spending time together, they always hear about when they when teams go on road trips, they get to hang out and bond a little bit away from families and kind of have that closeness. That was a team that got close right away and had some success right away. A lot of it, I think, had to do with those sorts of environments with guys hanging out in houses, 
getting up to some shenanigans that hopefully weren't too bad. Um, and then standing up for each other. Eric Karen's jumping in to fight Shane Corson in that playoff series after a big hit. Uh, you know, I, I think had a lot to do with those guys being so close. So um, I, I do love those little details and, and hearing about the day-to-day lives and how they kind of passed the time through a, a, what was a very fun season, I think, for a lot of fans. Before we let you go, let's talk about the two teams that you are currently covering. You took over the Rangers beat when the great Rick Carpinello retired. And watching the practices and the way the two teams go about their daily business, is there any major difference between the two, you know, day-to-day, you know, way these teams function that jumps out at you at all? You know, I think the Rangers are kind of on the path to getting to where the Islanders are. You know, obviously the records don't reflect that. The Rangers have been you know, put together a, a very good record in a sort of a different way. A lot of good goaltending, some timely scoring. The Islanders aren't quite, uh, haven't quite straightened things out yet. But I think when you watch the Islanders in training camp or in practice, you see a very businesslike environment, a team that has been together a long time. Coaching staff has been together a long time. They know exactly what they need to be doing and when. doesn't mean they do it well every day, but, but they know the task at hand. I think the Rangers are still... In that process, it's a much younger team uh, in a lot of spots. I think the, the, the focus is on uh, the Rangers' younger guys and you know, high draft picks like Capo Caco and Alexi Lafreniere who haven't quite broken out this season. And then they have a lot of higher-end guys that maybe don't. You don't associate with the hard work that the Rangers, that the Islanders rather put in day in and day out and game in and game out, especially in the playoffs. So, you know, I think Gerard Gallant... Um, it's not really a, you know, he's, he's a little bit like Barry Trotz. He's certainly not a stern taskmaster. He can be when he wants to be, but I think his Galant's goal with the Rangers is to, is to get them to play the way that he wants them to play, but also have fun doing it. And, uh, you know, and Barry Trotz preaches a lot of the same things. Uh, there's only one Barry Trotz in terms of his personality and the way that he's able to get his message across. But the Rangers, uh, like a lot of teams in the league, are trying to build towards what the Islanders have already done, um, and the Islanders, you know, have that have, seem to be closer to a Stanley Cup than a lot of other teams. And the Rangers definitely just want to get there and want to be in the tournament. Um, so, it, you know, it's interesting to see one team that's kind of further along the timeline than another, but uh, but both trying to become the similar sorts of teams and work towards the same goal. So the Islanders are flying out to, to Florida. They have two games left on this long and winding road trip. Currently sit five, four, and two. Worst case scenario is they could finish one game under five hundred. Best case scenario, maybe two over five hundred. You know, even if they they're one game under, do you think they might have signed up for that? You know, looking at that schedule and then adding the fact that they weren't going to have Varley for ten of those thirteen games. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think you know these these. These road trips um, are very rare in the league, and, and uh, kind of in researching some of them, you know, the, I think the last one, coincidentally, was the Rangers in 2013 when this building that I'm in right now is going through its last stages of renovation. They started that season on a nine-game road trip and looked awful at times doing it. You know, I think Ranger fans certainly remember uh, Thomas Hurdle going between the legs for a fourth <laughs> goal at Marty Baron in San Jose. They went out the next game and got shut out in Anaheim. Um, things were looking bad. They had a brand new coach that year in Alandino. I think there was there was no panic in the room, but there was definitely some concern when they got back at three six and zero. Um, and it took them until about December to really get it going. And lo and behold, they ended up getting to the finals and playing a very competitive final series and a lot of five game loss against the Kings. 
So I think that's something that the Islanders and their fans can hold on to, that the record doesn't look great, and it looks worse because everybody in the division seems to be winning night in and night out, which obviously will change as they play more divisional games. But, um, you know, it, it's it's not a panic. It's not a panicked room. It's not a panicked coaching staff. It's certainly not a panicked front office that the Islanders have. So I think 12 points is maybe, you know, probably 13 to 15 was their target. Uh, if they can get there with a point or two on in these last two games, I think they'll be satisfied, certainly not happy because they haven't quite played the way that they're capable of, but, but satisfied is probably a good word. And then you go into a stretch where there's a lot of home games. It's a brand new building. They'll be the only ones that have played on it more than once after a little bit of time. Uh, I think it'll, it'll look a lot like it did for them in Barclays uh, in Brooklyn, which was not an ideal place to play, but was really a, a house of horrors for visiting teams because of some of the quirks of it. So, you know, I think the Islanders will be sitting in a good spot. Uh, and if they are the team that we think they are, they won't, they won't sit back. They'll, be, they'll feel like they got through what they needed to get through with just another challenge to overcome and, and they'll be on their way. One more question before we let you go. Um, if let's say you were still writing this book and it was going to include this season, forget about Belmont and, and, and UBS, the return of Sedano Chara <laughs> looking ahead if you were writing the book, do you think it would have taken on a positive chapter or do you think it would have <laughs> taken on a negative chapter? Well, I mean, I certainly wrote about it in a positive way before, right after he signed and before the season started. It's, uh, it's quite a story to see a guy come back after 20 plus years uh, to a place where he started and, and may not have left very much given how things went uh, when he was originally an Islander in the late 90s before his, he was dealt away in the likes of Yashin deal. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's a tough transition to, for anybody, even a guy as, as accomplished as Udeno Chardon, to play this style of hockey day in and day out. You have to always have that motor going. Uh, you have to know where you're going, especially as a defenseman. And I feel like Chara has kind of been hurt a little bit because the team is just not playing as well as it normally does. If that were that were the case, I think they'd be covering up a few of his mistakes a little bit better and give him a little bit more of a chance to ease into it. And he's been better in the last three or four games. But um, but it is it is a fascinating situation and, and almost equally fascinating that Zach Parise decided to come. You know, I don't think I don't think Zach was nostalgic for his dad's days as an Islander. It's much more to do with Lou Lamorello, but but it is a neat connection to going back to what we were talking about earlier to see, uh, you know, Zach's dad who put the Islanders on the map 47 years, 46 years ago. And now his son who the Islanders passed over in the draft in his draft year, uh, only to see the devils take him and have him turn into a star, um, see him maybe close out his career playing in, in blue and orange. There's a lot of fans I think it hoped to see uh, almost 20 years ago when he was drafted. So, there's a lot of great storylines that kind of faded in the background because of the way the team started. But I think uh, those are two guys that um, maybe if they're not counted on to be such central contributors to this team uh, can really provide a lot as opposed to having to play 18 or 19 minutes a night in Char's case or score a bunch of goals in Parise's case. Because I don't think those guys are at, at the stage of their career like that anymore. It also doesn't help poor Z that the two times his stick breaks, it ends up the bucks end up in the net for sure. Arthur, thank you so much for your time tonight. Where's the best place for people to get this great new book? They can go on Amazon. There's a lot of local bookstores. I think uh, if they want to find a link for that online, um, but Amazon's probably your best bet. And uh, it's it's been going really well. I've gotten a lot of great messages from people who are really excited to have it, and uh, hopefully it keeps going. I appreciate everybody checking it out. 
Awesome. Looking forward to seeing you at UBS uh, at the end of the week and out at the, you know, the, arena, the practice arena during the week. Always great seeing you. Always great talking hockey with you. The one and only Arthur Staple. Read him every day in The Athletic. Pick up his new book, 100 Things Islander Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Good night, Arthur. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Take care. You got it. Arthur Staple.